0: This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Selvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The eyes of the world have turned to Russia's February invasion of Ukraine, where for the first time since the Second World War, a sovereign European country is facing an existential threat from an advancing army. The Russian leader Vladimir Putin characterized it as a military action necessary to rescue fellow Russians from an oppressive fascist dictatorship, the Ukrainians themselves, led by their charismatic president Volodymyr Zelensky, have defied this narrative by both mounting armed and civilian resistance and also waging and winning the public opinion campaign for support from the United States and Europe. In an epic struggle to defend its right to sovereignty over the might of a former superpower, the Ukrainian people have accepted the mantle of frontline combatants defending freedom and the international rule of law. But can they prevail over a determined aggressor with ambitions to return Russia to its former Soviet prominence? And what can those of us who look on in horror do to help them in their struggle? My guest today is Senior Fellow from the Institute for the Study of War, Natalia Buguyova, where she leads the Russia and Ukraine portfolio. Her work focuses on the Kremlin's foreign policy decision-making and ongoing global campaigns. Her research paper entitled, How We Got Here with Russia, The Kremlin's Worldview," written in 2019, is a chillingly prescient analysis of President Putin's ambitions to avenge the humiliation of the fall of the Soviet Union and lead Russia back to its role as rival to the U.S. and the West. Ms. Bugiova will share with us how the themes in her research should inform our understanding of this war and guide our response. She will also share with us her experience of having her country attacked and trying to help friends and family survive the onslaught. When I return, I'll be joined by Institute for the Study of War Senior Fellow, Natalia Bugiova. All right, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvagi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by National Security Fellow for the Institute for the Study of War, Natalia Bugiova. Welcome to Hubwonk, Natalia.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Now, before we dive into the uh, details of our uh, uh, our discussion of the, which is the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, you've had a long journey to uh, get to the the uh, Institute for the Study of War. Um, in fact, we knew each other back in uh, 2012 at at Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, but for our listeners, take us through that journey. How did you uh, go from uh, uh, a Ukrainian citizen uh, all the way over to uh, United States to uh, to the study of war?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I'm originally from Ukraine, from eastern Ukraine, a town called Um, I came to U.S. first as an exchange student, then returned to Ukraine, where I studied in college and worked in Kiev. Uh, then I came back to the U.S. for grad school at uh, HKS, where we've met, um, then returned to Ukraine again, shortly before the Euromaidan revolution of 2013, 2014. And it was truly a privilege to be a part of those events and help with the reform efforts, first working for the Ministry of Economy and then becoming the CEO of Kyiv Post, which was Ukraine's English language independent publication at the time. And then I moved back to the US in 2016 and have been working at the Institute for the Study of War in various roles, um, one of which was leading Russia and Ukraine research program. I remain national security fellow at ISW and work at a technology company uh, at my day job. And um, so I have been working on Russia since 2014 in various roles, uh, including in the field of open source intelligence and military analysis.
0: So before we get into that analysis, uh, you say your hometown is in eastern. Uh, Ukraine, uh, it's a very uh, difficult place to live. I hope your, uh, your family and friends uh, have found safety there.
1: No, thank you for asking. Um, I was able to evacuate my grandparents, one of whom is disabled, and my mom, who are now in Europe, uh, but other members of my family are in Ukraine, and some of them are still in Severodonetsk, uh, which is now experiencing heavy shelling uh, by the Russian forces.
0: Well, I'm sorry to hear that and I, I wish them well. Um, now, I thought your piece for the Institute for the Study of War offered a, 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 a superb understanding of how uh, we got here with Putin. Um, you know, he is a man who lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, that, I think, helps inform uh, our understanding of who this man is. I don't want to oversimplify the thesis of your work, how we got here um, with Russia, um, but it, by my reading, uh, I'm going I'm to paraphrase and then ask you to embellish a little uh, on this. Um, I would say Putin's view is, is a deep resentment in the Russian loss of stature after the fall of the, of the Soviet Union. Uh, he had a, has a nostalgia to re- return that uh, the power of that empire, if you will. Uh, and he sees the West as an obstacle to that return to greatness, and 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 resents uh, the U.S. and and the West for that. Uh, take us through the thesis of your research, and 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 it, it more or less shows an evolution from a fairly um, friendly uh, uh, post-fall of the Berlin Wall Russia to where we are now with a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Take us through that arc of how we got here.
1: Sure. Look, I think Putin's objectives have not really changed for years um they've always been the preservation of his regime efforts to restate russia as a global and great power uh regain dominant influence over the former soviet states and weaken can u.s and neutralize nato i think regaining control over ukraine uh, remained a consistent goal for him for many years and his intent when it comes to Ukraine, is really independent of the West. And I think it's a really key point. U.S. actions and NATO actions might have accelerated or uh, dampened the Kremlin actions in some cases. But again, his goals, Putin's goals remain the same. And in fact, it's really key to remember that the efforts to reintegrate so uh, Soviet space uh, have actually started even before Putin. It was President Yeltsin that are, who already adopted more assertive national security concept in ninety seven, which included more paternalistic policy uh, toward the former Soviet states. So when it comes to Ukraine, you know Putin tried to regain dominant influence through many means. Um, first, by trying to install political puppets. Then through military intervention in 2014, and then through many attempts to manipulate both Ukraine and the West into giving up Ukraine's sovereignty, essentially for the past eight years, and none of those efforts really worked. Um, So Putin kind of resorted to the last tool he had left from probably his perspective, which is a full-on military offensive that he has launched uh, last month. Yeah,
0: I I want, mm-hmm. oh, so I wanted to, excuse me, I, I just wanted to um, get to the first point you made in that, that response, which is, uh, I think, addressing uh, some level of narrative here in the U.S. that this uh, rationale for this invasion of Ukraine uh, was somehow um, uh, precipitated by, let's say, uh, the accretion of states into NATO or the EU. In other words, is a response to what he saw was a slow, um slow, uh, uh, threat to throw growing and, and ever closer threat from from NATO or the US. You're saying no, uh, independent of our actions or NATO's actions or the EU's actions, um, uh, Russia and Putin had designs on uh, influencing neighbor states all along.
1: Correct. I do think that Western actions once again served um, as an accelerator or or a dampener in some cases, but really the intent has been consistent. For years, And I think it's also uh, really important to, to say that, you know, there was a brief period of non-assertive foreign policy only for a few years in 1990s, um, which I think many in the U.S. believed have become the new norm. But in my assessment, it was an anomaly um, because uh, it was actually Yeltsin, right, who reversed to, to the course of trying to um, be more paternalistic towards the former Soviet states already in late. 90s and Putin continued that trend um, and really in really inward and in action for the next 20 years.
0: Well, another simultaneous trend were those former Soviet states who, um, I'd like to hear your opinion on that, uh, decided to look westward and, and either join EU or NATO. Uh, I don't know what the count is. I believe eight or nine states that had been uh, Soviet satellite states now are uh, members of NATO. Um, Forgive me if this is a, uh, a naive question. Why wouldn't Russia um, be uh, enticed to join the West, at least at some level, um, rather than uh, position itself as in, in clear opposition?
1: The, the point about uh, states joining the West and Russia's uh, argument about the sphere of influence, right, that it deserves. Uh, first, I just like, would like to point out that I think this this argument is indefensible in many. Ways, um, you know. First, the world, including Russia, recognized Ukraine's independence and independence of many former Soviet states in 1991. Um, and no independent state should need to justify its existence, its foreign policy ambition, no matter how big or small it is. Um, and um, you know, I think that's point number one. Point number two: um, Look, it was Russia's. Um, Choice and the Kremlin's choice, first and foremost, to do so, in part because Putin's number one goal is preservation of his regime. And a lot of the, um, I think, Western values and rules are antithetical to his efforts to preserve his regime, which he does through coercion, corruption, um, and just broadly authoritarian methods. So I think that's actually the core reason why. Russia, despite perhaps some of its ambitions to join the West, has not, because the model is antithetical to Kremlin's um, model of regime preservation.
0: So so let's focus now on your country, Ukraine, uh, which um, uh, hasn't joined the EU, uh, hasn't joined NATO, uh, but clearly has gone from, let's say, a a, a, a country... Largely sympathetic to um, Russia and being a partner or a, um, an ally of Russia, to where we see now the the brave uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, clearly with a Western focus, one who um, seems to aspire to the freedom and and um, and the values of the West. Well, how did we get from a, a country that was largely uh, Russian-like to one that seems uh, to be leaning? strongly westward?
1: Sure. Look, I think Ukraine's and Russia's path has started to diverge actually shortly after the Soviet Union collapse. And divide um, has never been actually about ethnicity and language. And I can tell you that as a, a, you know, originally Russian-speaking Ukrainian, uh, the core divide has been always about the way of life. Um, And the Orange Revolution of 2004 was the first, clear indication that Ukraine wanted to evolve to be the country with rights and rules. And the 2014 revolution was, of course, the pivotal moment. And again, the choice was not primarily about the West or the East. It was about whether to become a police state like Russia or not, and many in Ukraine made that choice in 2014, and, and some you know paid the ultimate price. Um, and I was part of the events on you know on Euromaidan in 2014. And um, it's worth noting that Ukraine has been the only country in the former Soviet space that has had legitimate cons- um, consecutive presidential elections, and the only country that had free media, no matter how limited. Uh, but nevertheless, free and you know, no matter uh, the issues and of course the known issue with the corruption, I think the trajectory has been for years, um, much before Zelensky, kind of toward a freer state.
0: Now, you uh, you mentioned so that this divide uh, dates back to the fall of the Soviet Union, and it's a it's a it's a uh, argument of a difference between in values or uh, aspirations for one's country, or the rule of law um now you you made a reference to i i believe it's called the euro maiden uh, revolution in Ukraine um and uh, Russia did not sit by idly and, and watch this happen uh, in fact of course uh, uh the um uh Russia did invade portions of Ukraine back in two thousand and fourteen. say more about what you think think the motive was for that was was that something as a as a sort of a Sabre rattling or was this a a, a long, slow design on actually uh, taking over Ukraine in the long run?
1: Yeah, great question. Look, I think first, Ukraine's freedom aspirations that were expressed uh, very clearly in 2014 did pose a threat from Putin's perspective um, to Russia and his regime, uh, precisely because the democratic model in the former Soviet space can both you know, endanger Putin's regime by showing as an alternative, but also endanger Putin's project to integrate the um, other states in the former Soviet space into kind of Russia-dominated frameworks. I think Crimea, in my assessment at least, was planned long before 2014, given the speed with which was it was executed. Um, Putin used the opportune moment essentially when there was a weakness in Ukrainian governance after, um, shortly after the Euromaidan revolution to both seize Crimea and launch military invasion uh, in Donbass. I think it's also worth noting that, again, as in many cases, the goal was to control Ukraine and to control its decision making. Um, what Russia tried to do for the subsequent eight years is to use the illegal self-proclaimed for, you know, DNR and LNR republics in Eastern Ukraine and tried to insert them in Ukrainian governance system with, with no success. So once again, um, the goal uh, always been and always remained control. Um, and in 2014, Russia saw an opportunity to go for uh, portions of Ukraine, essentially militarily. I think, again, Crimea was planned long before 2014.
0: So, uh, OK, that's um, now that we've got a, a good history lesson up to current times. Now, of course, we have to talk about a uh, a war. Um, now, uh, Ukraine is uh, roughly the size of Texas, an enormous country with 44 million inhabitants. Um, one does not need to be a, a a student of the study of war to know that uh, to quell a, a population of that size, you would need a substantial force. Um, As one who studies war, uh, it seems that 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 force was woefully inadequate for the job. Uh, Is this mistake attributable to the idea that Putin had perhaps thought Ukraine would be, um, let's say, uh, less resistant to uh, deliberate uh, invasion?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, Putin has made several substantial miscalculation in his war effort. And, you know, while he will and can recalibrate, I think several issues cannot be quickly addressed. And one of those is the fact that Kremlin yet again misunderstood Ukraine. I think Russia miscalculated local sentiment in 2014 when, um, if you recall, Russia wanted to take six regions of Ukraine, at least in 2014, and managed to secure only two portions of two regions, uh, in part because it actually miscalculated uh, loyalties on the ground, resistance, uh, and the sentiment. And it seems that eight years after, despite the fact that Ukraine has been openly building up its defenses with Western support, the Kremlin uh, has seemed not to have learned that lesson. and shown that it does not still misunderstand Ukraine's military capability or popular sentiment, including what's really important among Russian-speaking population, because right now the military action is happening in large part in East and South of Ukraine. Um And I think in part because look, Putin and then Kremlin has always assigned very little agency to Ukraine, a classical, I think, imperial or great power mistake, and I think it accounts for some um, of the miscalculation. I think in addition to that, it also suggests to me a bigger problem of analytical reporting chain uh, within Kremlin that might be broken.
0: So you, you mentioned uh, uh, agency. Uh, Ukraine has a considerable amount of agency here. They're putting up a hell of a fight. Um, someone who has become a world celebrity in this process has been uh, the President Zelensky. Uh, he's winning the uh, uh, public opinion battle hands down uh he's been i suppose c- compared to even a, a winston churchill for our time um do you see the fight that the ukrainians are putting up particularly as you say it's it's even the russian-speaking eastern ukrainians are putting up a hell of a fight is this owed uh to his inspiration and leadership or do you think uh any reasonable leader in that position uh, would would uh, still see and still be leading a a um a fiercely uh resistant ukrainian population
1: no, great question. Look, I think he is doing a fantastic job. Um, however, I think Ukrainians have well surpassed dependence on one leader. Uh, and it's really important to highlight. And, uh, you know, even during your Maidan revolution of 2014, there was no one leader on Maidan. Uh, it was a lot of self-organizing, self-driven um, effort at the grassroots level. And similarly, when uh, Russian... Um, Forces launched an intervention in 2014. Ukraine actually didn't have military or army at that point practically, um, and it was a lot of just local uh, volunteers um, who went uh, to to the front line and fought uh, at the time when Ukraine even didn't have a president. So I think um, with Zelensky or without the fight will continue though he's certainly, uh, I think, an inspiration figure for many in the world during this time. So
0: well, let's get into the uh, on the ground. Again, you're a student of the study of war. Uh, what's the current military situation on the ground here on uh, day 20?
1: Sure, a couple of quick points. First, you know, look, Putin's original plan to seize Ukraine in a matter of days um, has failed. Russia has not established air or ground superiority yet. Um, and this is despite billion dollars of investment, you know, years of military reform, um, combat experience. Russian forces seem to be failing at basic operational art. I think Ukraine, um, Ukraine's military, but also the whole population, including once again, Russian speakers are fighting relentlessly. Russia wasn't able to take a single major city for several days early um, in, in the war, but it has shifted. its Approach and is now essentially trying to inflict maximum cost and humanitarian costs and trying to level and bomb the cities um, and such a level of them to the ground. And we have many documented incidents of targeting civilians. And I think this is how Russia is, has continued to advance its ground forces very slowly, but under this umbrella of, um, of an air campaign.
0: So uh, it seems like it's screeching into something uh, akin to a stalemate. I'm not sure we're there yet. It looks like Russia continues to to advance, albeit slowly. Uh, where do you see uh, this uh, military campaign uh, heading? And what, what key uh, events are you watching for?
1: No, for sure. Look, the, the outcome is not written. Uh, from my perspective, the whole country is emerging to defend Ukraine on one side, Uh, Russia, on the other, will likely uh, regroup uh, and and renew its offensive. Putin can throw more capability at Ukraine. um, And there is some um, capability that he still has in his escalation letter. Um, Russia also has information dominance over Russia's domestic information space, which allows it to spin the war in favorable light. Um, however, there's several challenges for the Kremlin, but also several risks for Ukraine that I'm watching. You know, first, um, the Kremlin made substantial miscalculation in, in its war effort and some of which cannot be fixed quickly, like understanding Ukraine or, you know, Russian military struggling with basic operational art. I think Putin also took risks by deploying significant portion of Russia's ground forces – which he probably did not intend to use in full into Ukraine. Um, There are massive logistical issues. And I think the key question is, can Russia establish reliable um, supply chains? So far it hasn't, but that's one thing um, I think we're watching. And as Putin stretches out further into Ukraine, the logistics will uh, get harder. I think mobilization is also tricky uh, for Putin in part because I think he realized he doesn't have his full base in line. Um, we see Russia's efforts to try to engage militaries of you know, Belarus or calling for Syrians. Or today there were some reports that unconfirmed that Russia is asking for uh, Chinese aid um, in this fight. I think it's in part actually a sign of weakness and, and the fact that his mobilization efforts uh, at home are not going well. Um, I think... Two more things on Ukraine's side that uh, that we're watching that are really um, important. First, you know, Kyiv is Russia's biggest effort and Ukraine's main risk. Um, It can change the trajectory of war, even though Russia taking Kyiv will not end this war. Um, I think second um, is also Russia's efforts in the south of Ukraine, where it had gained the most ground, even though slower than uh, I think we've forecasted, uh, but Russia's efforts to gain fo- foothold in the South and then encircle Ukraine's forces in the East is another thing that um, uh, I'm watching.
0: The Ukrainians have seemed to do something, then uh, the impossible, which is uh, unite uh, all Americans behind a cause. Um, uh, and I'm sure our listeners are thinking right now, my gosh, you know, is there anything that could be done uh, uh, for this cause? Um, you had compiled a list of uh, some of the things you recommend uh, vetted vetted organizations that uh, are making a real contribution to Ukrainians' cause. Um, but for those listeners who have uh, skills or have resources, who perhaps even uh, medical or military resources, what what can our listeners do to help uh, uh, improve Ukraine's uh, likely positive outcome?
1: No, absolutely. And I talked to a lot of my uh, American friends. And many have said that they felt hopeless in a way, but I think there are a lot of things that regular citizens and organizations can do. Um, I'll name just a couple. First, I actually think um, it's really important to maintain the issue um, in the news and maintain the spotlight of the issue and joining rallies, um, calling representatives to demand military and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Reading verified sources of information and actually trying to reach out for those who have uh, friends inside of Russia and Belarus and trying to break that blockade informational blockade um, and Kremlin's trying to keep you know its population in the dark is is actually really important. I think additionally, um look, this war will be in part determined by logistics. And ability to send humanitarian and military assistance at scale uh, is actually really, really critical. Ukraine, you know, armed forces are several thousands of people and then, you know, they're supported by territorial defense and then they're supported by the population. But if we have, you know, millions of people around the world supporting them, it actually gives Ukraine a chance. So humanitarian aid through organizations like Razem, or Nova Ukraine, um, and you, you can share the list of the vetted organization that I compiled. Um, is is really important. And there are also already ways to send medical uh, and other aid directly to Ukraine from the US, um, which you know now that some of the supply chains are are established. Um, I think final one I mention is there's a lot to do also for businesses and. Um, Organizations uh, from kind of walking the walk on the ESG and uh, divesting uh, from Russia, but also keeping a lot of businesses accountable, um, especially those who operate in Russia. But separately, just sending supplies to Ukraine at scale. Again, it's time for big moves. Um, you know, people—they are refugees and people inside of Ukraine—they need basic stuff, right? Mobility, vehicles, fuel, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, housing, modular homes uh, and, and things like that. Um, so I think there are plenty of ways that, uh, people at individual and organizational level can support.
0: Now you study war, we established that, uh, let's talk about a different topic, which is peace. Um, I know there's been several uh, attempts by both countries to to discuss, uh, the terms of, of ending the fighting. Um, uh, in your view, knowing both sides as well as anyone, uh, what might be the terms under which both sides might be able to, uh, accept a truce or perhaps declare victory and end this?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a challenging question in part because there have been peace talks um, for the past eight years. And Russia had many opportunities to establish peace. Uh, and I just think peace was never a goal. Control always been the goal. Um, the problem is the way that Putin framed this invasion. Essentially, uh Stating that Ukraine is not a country and that he aims to, you know, denazify it with Russia's false narrative, as well as the brutality of Kremlin's military campaign in Ukraine and um, just horrific civilian targeting of civilians and the casualties and the humanitarian catastrophe that we're observing, um, just make I think peace talks um, very unlikely um, at this at this point at least. Precisely because Putin made it very clear that he will take nothing less than Ukraine's sovereignty. And Ukraine made it very clear that it would would not stop fighting. So I think at this point, I do not see a a plausible middle ground, but situation can change as military situation on the ground evolves.
0: Uh, It seems that, again, Putin has staked his, I I, I dare say, his, his life, his reputation on this on this war, um, he's up for re-election in twenty twenty-four. As someone who studies Russia and Putin and the dynamics in in the Kremlin, um, does this war, uh, at least as we can see it now, improve or or diminish his likelihood of being reelected, um, if you can call it that, within Russia?
1: Yeah. So, look, first of all, Ukraine is not the only issue at stake uh, for Putin in this war. His regime is, uh, and actually so is the project to reintegrate former Soviet Union states is on a on line. Um, you know, we've seen Russia's efforts to really pull in Belarus fully into this conflict. And Russia has regained control over Belarus over the past year, but still conventional Belarusian forces have not materially entered uh, the conflict. And, you know, Kazakhstan refused to provide soldiers to Russia, at least overtly, um, So I think there's uh, many things that are at stake for him. I think 2024 is is too far away at this point um, to to make that assessment, uh, just given how much he put on the line. I would also say that, look, U.S. should not anticipate um, that Russia's foreign policy will automatically change when Putin's term ends, whatever that might be and under uh, whatever circumstance that might happen. Uh, Unfortunately, I think Putin's approach um, will most likely outlast him, at least partially, and that is by design.
0: That's unfortunate. Um, Well, I think we're running out of time. Uh, I think we'll have to leave it there. Um, um, Where can our listeners find your work at the uh, Institute for the Study of War?
1: No, absolutely. Um, I think Rush team at ISW is doing Phenomenal work uh, covering the conflict and publishing daily updates uh, on Ukraine crisis and the map. And a uh, big shout out to my colleagues, Mason Clark and George Paris um, and Katarina Stepanyanke at ISW. And you can follow three of them on Twitter, but also just go into the understandingwar.org uh, for daily updates.
0: Indeed, I've been following those and they're quite informative. Uh, it, it's it's terrifying, but uh, it's it's what we're what we're living through right now. So I just want to say a, a, a big thank you for joining us uh, in the middle of a war uh, with in your country, uh, with your family, your friends, your 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 loved ones. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on Hubwonk. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And thanks for having me.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk in your iTunes podcatcher. If you wanna help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk.com at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.